Well, if you're new, my name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and so honored you decided to join us today. This is week five uh, of a series we're calling If Grace is True. We're going to go one more week in this uh, um, next week. And what we've been trying to do is say, if we could take and understand that word that sounds so churchy, grace, and actually apply it to our life, what would happen? Uh, That's been kind of the, the heart of this series. And the goal is that you would get all of the benefits of God's grace in your life, they'd actually become a part of your life. That's kind of what we're after. Um, and today, what I want to talk to you about is something that if you stay with God's grace long enough, if you live long enough, and you try to understand God's grace and how rich and deep it is, you, you come to this problem. And here's the problem that we're going to talk about today, and it's this, that grace is not fair. It's not fair. We're going to talk about that. Let me give you, just before we read the scripture for today, uh, just kind of a roadmap for where we're headed the next uh, couple months over the summer. Uh, I know you're, uh, if you're watching on Facebook Live, let us know where you're uh, watching from. We have people who watch all over the country. Uh, we'd love to know that. Uh, but over the summer, we're going to do several things. We're going to go one more week in this series, and then we're going to do a series in July called Texting God. And we're going to talk about prayer and uh, using the Psalms. The Psalms in the Bible is a prayer book that covers virtually every human emotion you could possibly have and gives us the resources and tools to turn the things that we feel that we go through into a prayer. So how do you pray when, you, when you're angry? How do you pray when you're resentful? How do you pray when you're hurt? How do you pray when you're overjoyed? We're going to look at that uh, through the month of July. Get some handles on how you can do that, make prayer more a part of your life. And we're even during that time going to invite you to pray together. We haven't worked out all the details of how that'll work, but at some point in here during the week, the building will be open and we'll invite you to come for a little while if you, as you're able and pray here in the building. You can pray anywhere, but we want to kind of do it together. Uh, we want to make prayer a, a bigger part of what we do as a church because prayer is how we connect to God. Um, so we're going to do that. And then after that, we're going to do a series I'm really looking forward to called Man Code. Uh, we're going to talk about what it means to be a man in the 21st century and, uh, and how we do that. We're going to do all that. I'm lo- really looking forward to that. And then after that, we're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you understand the power that is available to you in God's Spirit living in you and empowering you to follow Jesus, it is a life-changing thing. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And then all the way through the summer, we've got student ministry stuff happening. You can get the calendar for that. Um, we're going to be ramping up for the back-to-school fair. You'll begin to hear about that, how we serve our community in the fall. We'll begin to collect school supplies, all of that. I know no one that's just got out of school or teacher is wanting to hear that, so just ignore what I just said, uh, and then we'll do that. And then uh, uh, we've made some transitions, and so there have been some transitions on our staff, and July the 11th and 12th, it's a, a Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to be doing a staff planning thing, and I'm, I, I just want to ask you to pray for us, not in a bad way, but in a good way, that we would be listening to God's Spirit so we can help lead you. There's some, frankly, some things we need to retool as a church and how we connect people and empower people to do the thing that God's put on their heart. Uh, so we want to we wanna do that. And so if you would pray for us July 11 and 12 and all that that's coming. Uh, but uh, we're, I'm excited about this summer. This is going to be a good summer. So wherever you are, watch online, be here, uh, but be a part of all that this summer. Wait, stand with me. We're going to read God's Word together. Uh, This is uh, one of the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. It'll be on the screen. I'll read it aloud. For the kingdom of heaven, uh, Jesus said, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius, which was a day's wages, for the day, and sent them into his vineyard. 
About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing and told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around and asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers were hired about five in the afternoon, came and each received a denarius. So when those who came, who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These were who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Am I not being unfair to you, friend? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do with I, what I want uh, with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I am generous. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Standing. Well, you need to know this about the Bible. Uh, as Christians, we read the Bible and we study the Bible. Uh, our understanding of the Bible is that the Bible is an inspired book. Uh, what we mean by that is not on the level of uh, a novel by John Grisham or uh, something that J.K. Rowling wrote for Harry Potter. Those are neat books, you know, and they're maybe they're inspiring to read on one level. Uh, but we're not meaning on that sense. When we talk about the Bible being inspired, what we mean is that God, uh, like a movie director, directed the writing of the Bible, used people in their real circumstances and situations, and as they wrote about their understanding of God, um, put all of what we know as the Bible together, and with the intent and purpose that we would, uh, when we read the Bible, that we would understand better who God is, because the point of the Bible is to uh, understand and know the God that the Bible is about. Um, now, many people, when they think about the Bible, uh, church or not church, they think that what happens is that Christians worship uh, this book. This is actually my mother's Bible. Uh, it's from the 1950s and uh, has all kinds of quotes that I read from time to time that she wrote, notes that she wrote in the very beginning, and um, I use it to preach out of every, every Sunday. Um, but I remember one time when I was a kid, my mom had a Bible, and she'd set it on uh, some stack of books in our living room. And for whatever reason, she'd taken, I don't remember what, she'd taken something and she'd set it on top of the Bible. Now, at the time, I was probably 9 or 10, and I thought, because oh, I thought you worshipped the Bible. Oh, mom put something on the Bible. Is she going to go to hell? <laughs> and I remember later, when I'd, she'd done something that, you know, how moms will... You, you get mad at your parents, and in a moment when I thought I would just give her a zinger, I went, I don't even think you're a Christian because you put something on top of the Bible. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I had this idea that the, we worship the Bible. Well, we don't worship the Bible. The Bible reveals God to us, and so we read it so that we can understand God better. And when the Bible reveals God to us, it reveals to us Jesus, because there's no perfect people. I hope you understand this. There are no perfect people in the Bible other than Jesus. Everybody else in the Bible, uh, they're not the people who got it all right and perfect. In fact, it's the record of people who are imperfect. The only perfect person in the Bible is Jesus, and the, the, the Bible reveals Jesus to us. And so Jesus is God's grace in action. So the, the grace of God, you would expect to find 
the grace of God, the mention of the grace of God all the way through the Bible. So I've, I, just got, I just found a bunch of scriptures. This is not even all of them by any measure, any stretch, uh, that I'm just going to put on the screen for you here. We're just going to kind of scroll through these. Lisa's just going to put these up here. Uh, Paul wrote, started all of his letters about grace, and he ended all of his letters in the New Testament about grace, and God's gracious in the Old Testament, and just scroll right through these. The grace of God appears to us. We're justified by God's grace. Um, we're not under the law. We're under grace. God's grace is sufficient for us. We, God has a throne of grace. Like that's his, he reigns and rules with grace. Um, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. We're to be strong in the grace of God. I mean, this, just again and again and again, you see the grace of God mentioned in the Bible over and over again. And you would expect it because grace is like the operating system of the Bible. You know what an operating system is? You take the operating system out of a computer and you push power on the computer. You know what's going to happen? You know what's going to come up on the screen? Nothing. Because <laughs> it's got to have the operating system to work. If you took grace out of the Bible, the Bible wouldn't work. It'd just be a book of rules, which many people think that it is. Uh, there's a guy, if you're a, a, a fan of leadership and you read and, and read about leadership, you've probably heard the name Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker uh, is considered by many people the father of modern management. He wrote and influenced people literally around the globe. And later in his life, he died a number of years ago in his 90s, and later in his life, he became a follower of Jesus. And someone came to him and said, hey, uh, Peter, why? Uh, you're a smart guy and... Why, 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 why now? Why have you become a Christian now? Why not some other religion? Why not Judaism or Buddhism? And this was his response because he understood it was the operating system. He said, who else has grace? It's the operating system of the Bible. Now, if, if, you, if you dig into the Bible and you try to understand grace, you're going to find several things as you read through the scriptures. Um, one is that you're going to find that grace is a covenantal reality uh, not a psychological reality. What in the world do I mean by that? A covenant is a, a binding uh, relational agreement. We, we, don't, we operate by contract as a society, uh, but a covenant is something we make that goes beyond uh, how you behave and how I behave. It's a binding agreement. Maybe the closest thing that we have to a covenant is marriage. Uh, we agree, we stand up in front of God, everybody, and we agree, listen, when you smell, I'm still going to love you. Uh, when you don't look like you do today and your breath stinks really bad, I'm not going to reject you and leave you for someone else. Right? It's a covenant. We make a, uh, I'm gonna, I know you're going to do some things I'm not going to like, and you're gonna do some, I'm going to do some things you're not going to like, uh, but I'm not going to leave. We make a covenant. I'm not going to, based on how I feel any one given day, up and go, because I'm making a covenant with you. Uh, parenting is kind of like a covenant. You know, you raise your kids and you, do, you want to get rid of them sometimes, but you don't because you're there, right? I committed to be with you. Friendship at its best is like, operates like a covenant. We make up for the differences, the, 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 the ways we fall short. Uh, if you operated your marriage on the basis of your feelings, um, you, you wouldn't be married for very long, right? It can't be, it can't be the reality. When, you're, when you know it's a covenantal reality, you go, okay, I know you don't feel like being married today, but get up and pick your socks up, please. You know, it's like we're, we're going to be in this together. Uh, you find out that grace is like that. Grace is, grace is a covenantal reality, not a psychological reality. What, what that means is that it is dependent on what God has done for you in Jesus, not on how you feel about how you are doing at the current moment. Do, do you understand that? 
It has nothing to do with, I feel really close to God. I went to church and I sang songs and I felt so connected to God and God loved me. Oh, and then the next day you get up and you feel nothing. If it's, if it's psychological, then you're no, no longer a Christian the next day when you feel nothing and you're really a good Christian when you feel, no, it's not, it's a covenantal reality. That's what you, you find that out about grace. Uh, you also find out that grace is something that you have to grow in. You have to grow in your understanding of grace. Uh, you, you grow in your understanding of how big God's grace is. You grow in your understanding of how uh, God's grace comes to you. You find out that God's grace comes to you in all different kinds of ways, and you begin to see God's grace in places that you never thought you would see it. I remember once when I was a kid, um, my family lived in Omaha, and uh, we had this dog. Uh, her, she was a golden retriever, and we named her Kip. And uh, I remember at one time, I was probably 10 years old, and I, 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 for whatever reason, I had one of those things you have as a kid where you just kind of feel like the world's against you, and, and I had a good family, but for whatever reason, I, I felt what I felt, like, you know, I'm the only one, I'm so alone, and blah. And we had, uh, going out, we had a, a split-level house, and out, off the kitchen was a door with a stoop, and then some steps down, and then you'd go around in the yard. And I went and I sat down there. I remember it was sh a shady day in the summer, and I sat down on that stoop right there, just kind of feeling sorry for myself and wondering if I would always be alone. And Kip came running up and came right up onto the stoop and nuzzled herself up right against me, laid her head on my lap, and looked at me in the eyes. I didn't have the words for this, but that was God's grace to me, reminding me I was not alone. And when you grow in grace, you, you begin to see how God has reached out to you in different ways. As you grow in grace, you also start to own up to your issues because you realize, you know what, I'm, I need grace. And if I need grace, that must mean I messed some things up. And you start to see how broken you are. But you don't get overwhelmed by that because you're understanding God's grace. And, and then, you, not only that, you, you learn to, as you grow in God's grace, you learn to apply it to situations. So you're able to overlook people's offenses. Uh, when someone creates a mess and they leave like the stinking pile mess on the floor emotionally or relationally at work or home or whatever, as you grow in grace and your ability to apply it, you see the mess and you just step right over the mess. <laughs> Whereas before, you might step in it and then get mad. How Who left this here? Right? You become, we have a word for this, you become gracious. You become more and more gracious. And you understand that God has the grace to help you become a gracious person, even when you're not a gracious person. You, you grow in grace. Now think about this. What would it be like if you were a gracious iron worker? Or you were a gracious plumber? Or you were a gracious millwright? Or you were a gracious teacher? Or you were a gracious parent? Or you were a gracious manager? You grow as you... As you understand God's grace you, you grow in it but then there's then there's the problem because if you just live long enough you find out and you discover that grace is not fair uh, this is not explicit in the scriptures you kind of have to read between the lines I, I'll give you an example when Jesus is crucified you know Jesus was crucified between between two actual thieves there's the innocent one who sacrifices himself for you and I in the middle, and there on his sides are two actual thieves. Now, we don't know what they did. Uh, maybe they were longtime criminals. Maybe they'd committed one crime. I don't know. Uh, but somewhere, 
watching that thief on Jesus' side over here was the person that that thief robbed, and that person is sitting out there watching this man be crucified for his crime, saying, yeah, you're getting what was, come to you, what was coming to you. And you know what he says to Jesus, that, that thief? You know what he says to Jesus? He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you know what Jesus says to him? He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. That's not fair. That, that's not fair at all. And now in your life, you, you, feel, you feel this. But let, let's stop. Let's, let's just think about fairness for a second. If you're a parent, you, this is what you immediately go to because your kids say a phrase. If they're like all kids everywhere, they say this phrase. You know what it is they, when, when something doesn't go their way. What do they say? That's not Right, say it like you mean it. That's not fair. Say it like you're seven. That's not fair. Right, exactly. Kids, it's a good thing because kids have this innate sense that something ought to be better than it is and there ought to be justice. I think that points to, to God's reality in the world. But think about your expectations for a second. Think about what you want when something doesn't go your way, especially when you're a kid. It, that was, you felt like it was unfair because of your expectations about what you, think was, you thought was going to happen. And because of the story that you told yourself that you lived in and how things ought to work out. In, in other words, uh, you had this sense of what you hoped for and then what it all meant. So my, my oldest uh, child is five years older than his younger sister. And if something happens where she gets to do something that he doesn't get to do, he says what all children say. That's not, that's not fair, right? That's not fair. Uh, he, he doesn't remember that he's had five more years of watching television shows than his little sister. His expectations are that it will all work out for him right now because the story you tell yourself when you're a kid is, this is it, so I got to grab everything I got. There might not be another chance to watch television ever, so I got to have it right now, this second. But when you, when, you, when you go through your life and you try to get your head around grace that God would forgive people for their wrongs, you begin to see very quickly that it's not fair. Uh, some of you may remember Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy was, um, uh, he was a handsome man by most accounts. He was very polished, very smooth. And one of the things he would do is he would go to a parking lot in a large store, and he would get a cane, and he would pretend like he had a limp. And he would limp, and he would have bags in his hand, and he would limp along to his car, and he would see a woman. And he would, he would drop it there by his car, and the woman, you know, this man who spoke well and looked clean and looked presentable, obviously he was a very okay guy. And when the woman came over, he would grab the woman, uh, abduct her, and do what it is that serial killers do. And he did this over and over again until he got caught. Uh, I watched an interview um, with him uh, before he was executed. And in jail... He found God, or better way to say this, God found him. And he found out that the grace of God was for even for a serial killer like him. If you're, if you're a fair-minded person, if you really do ask that question, is this fair or not? You have to look at that and go, no, wait a second, wait a second. This guy and all the trauma, the wake of horrific trauma that he left behind him and, and the shattered lives 
God would forgive someone like that um, on their last hour on the cross, right? Literally, he would say, today you'll be with me in prayer. What? That is not fair. Now, let's not make that hypothetical because you can go, that's there. let's think about you. Think about your life. Say that you suffered some abuse in your life and the person who perpetrated that on you later in your life comes back to you and says, listen, I, I realize what I did was wrong and I'm not trying to ask you to say what I did was right, but I, I did something wrong to you and I need to apologize to you and I need to make it up to you. And I've found, that God has found me and I, I, forgiven me and I'm hoping that you can forgive me too. If you, again, if you're a fair-minded person, you have to say, wait a second, so the trauma, the lifelong scar that you gave to me, uh, now God just wipes that out? That's, what do we say to that? That's not fair. That is absolutely not fair. That, that's not supposed to happen. That's not what's supposed to, to go on. And uh, Now listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize what you went through, but the expectations you brought into your life were that you shouldn't suffer any hurt, and the story you told their, yourself was that there ought to be some justice in the world. Now listen, Jesus would agree with you, and that's why he tells us this parable to say that grace is not fair. It's absolutely not the case. Now, when Jesus tells a parable, this is one of the common ways he teaches, uh, he tells these parables, and so they're always analogous. One thing is analogous to another thing, and so when, we, when you read a parable, you're meant to put yourself into the parable and say, now, who am I in this, this parable, the story Jesus is telling? And here in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells this story of the landowner. So, so we're, we're, God's making, Jesus is making comparisons. Who's the landowner? Just shout it out. Land, the landowner is God, right? And then if he's the landowner, then who does, whose land is it? Right? God's, right? And then the workers are who in the parable? It's us. It's you and us. In fact, it gets, Jesus breaks it down and says they're the people who show up for work at 6 a.m. and the people who show up at 9 a.m. and the people who show up at noon and the people who show up at 3. And then the people who come in at the last hour. Uh, almost like the scale of productivity and, uh, and importance. In that day, that was a day laborer kind of scenario. If you've been around places where they're the day laborers, uh, if you didn't have land in that day, it was very hard for you to get a leg up in the world because you didn't have access to uh, a, a piece of property that you could own and develop and cultivate and run a business on. You were always at the, the, uh, the, the, the end of the generosity of someone who owned land. And so you were a day laborer. You'd show up and someone would say, hey, come work for me for the day. And that was just kind of how you made your living. Um, and then there's the denarius, right? That is the, the day's wage. It, and Jesus even says uh, to one of, the, one of the people, he says, listen, when you come, I'll, I'll pay you the, what's right. Jesus is referring to it as, as the thing that's fair. And those wages are what we expect. See, they, they function as the thing in the story about what you and I expect that we're going to get for what we do. What's owed to me? What's fair? And then there's this unspoken thing that's the generosity of the landowner that is the stand-in for the grace of God. And so Jesus tells the story of these people who go to work, and then at the end of the day, he says to his foreman, now pay them, and start with the last one. And the last one comes up, and he whips out his money bag and pay, gets out the denarius, the coin that represents a, a day's wages, and hands it to the person who came at 5 o'clock. Put yourself in the story. If you were standing there that day, and you showed up at 6 a.m., and you see the guy at who came at 5 p.m., get what you agreed to work for, what are you thinking is coming for you? This is going to be awesome. I'm going to get three times. This is great. I need to text my wife and tell her that I'm getting more than I thought I would, right? 
Now, what's Jesus doing, though? Jesus is framing the story. He's telling us the story that God lives in, not the one that we live in. And in the story he frames, he says, listen, God owns all this. We just work on what God owns, and God takes care of the people who work on his land. That's what happens. And God has a different math for how he operates. He has the math of grace. It's not our math. Now, this is the story. So Jesus frames the story. Now, do you understand that the story that you live in determines the answers that you get about your life? Do you understand that? This, uh, about a week ago, Kathleen Nelson, who's part of our church, passed away, long, long battle with cancer. Kathleen and her husband, Don, have been here for basically their entire lives. Don's dad, uh, in the 1930s, began what is this church today. And uh, I, I was at the funeral on Wednesday, and Bob Burton, who's our, our rock star pastor, uh, did the funeral, and I was, I, I prayed at one point in the funeral, so I'm sitting there right next to Bob while he's giving his words of comfort. And I'm listening, because I'm in the story. I'm in the story of God, and I'm, I'm listening to what Bob's saying. He's comforting two people who followed Jesus for the majority of their life, and he's saying words of comfort, and he's saying all that. And I'm like, yes, this is so true. This is not the end. There is hope. We will get past. Yes, this is all true. But the thought ran through my brain. I said, what if the, there's someone sitting out there, and they don't, they, don't, they don't agree to this story. They don't buy this story at all. If you don't buy that story, then you're sitting there thinking, how in the world could a good God give that woman cancer? And I, how in the world could that happen? That's not fair. And it's not right that that happened and that this man has to lose his wife. That's not right. Because the story that you live in gives you the answers that you're getting to your life. You, you understand that, right? But if you buy the story, you go, okay, I, this hurts right now, but she's with the Lord now and I will see her again. That's the story. You get, the, you get a different answer. Some of you, some of the suffering in your life is simply the story that you're telling yourself and you need to put yourself in a different story. That's, and you will not suffer as much. That's part, of, that's part of what's going on in your life. But if this, if this were our story that we were telling, uh, we would correct Jesus and we would say, Jesus, you didn't quite get the story right because the story you and I live in is the story of the American dream. That's our story. And in the American dream, what happens? You get what you work for. And anybody from anywhere can show up here in the land of opportunity and get something if they're willing to work hard enough. We even have phrases that we say about this. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? No such thing. And you, you get what you earn or pay for or deserve, right? Um, so we would say, uh, we would tell the story differently. So for us, what we would do is we would say, okay, the, the 6 a.m. people and the 9 a.m. people, uh, these are the hardworking people. And uh, so we would admire them because our story, again, tells us what we think is valuable and important. And so we would admire them, maybe the 6 a.m. people more than the 9 a.m. people. What's wrong with the guy who had to sleep in a little bit and get there at 9? But okay, he's got there at 9. All right, eight-hour workday. Then we look at the people who were, got there at noon or at 3 o'clock, and we might even give them a pass, too, because we might go, ah, oh, you know, that's just Joe. Uh, he's part of the union, and he takes advantage of union protection and is lazy. But, hey, he's one of us. He's one of our guys. We're not going to throw him under the bus. You know Joe. You know what he's like, right? <laughs> we let him pass. Sorry to any Joes in the room. But then when we say, we look at the 5 p.m. guy, what do we say in the American dream? Because it tells us what we value and what's important and how the, what the pecking order is. What, is it, what do we say about someone who shows up at 5 p.m.? Lazy bum. Loser. So you get your values from whatever story you're in. That's, that's where your values come from. So here's the values that come from the American dream story. 
I'm valuable based on what I produce. My worth is determined by what I do. I would even argue that our 24-7 cycle that we're in, that we used to not have as a culture, is just the direct result of the story that we live in. I, I'm valuable when I produce things, so I'm more valuable when I produce more things. Right? That's what we live in. This is not, I want to tell you, this is not the math of grace. This is not how Jesus says things happen. Because what grace does, grace over, overturns our expectations and it gives us a new perspective and it tells us that we live in a new story. We live in something different now. And so under grace, things change. The way we see things change. Who, what's important changes. So let's just, let's just think though for a second about these 11th hour people, the people who show up at 5 p.m. Uh, Jesus asked, the, the, the landowner asked the, the guys that have been there at 5 p.m., he says, now why are you here? And this is their response. They say, because no one has hired us. There are two ways that you could take that. One is, you could say, these are people who are truly disadvantaged. Now, I, I don't know um, if you know what it's like, maybe this is your circumstance, but if you're very poor and you live on minimum wage and you have children to support and you're a single parent, let's just put you someone in that category, you know that life is incredibly difficult because it's, you're just one bad thing, one fender bender, one sick kid, so you have to call off work from literally losing everything. Uh, you're truly at a disadvantage. We, we don't really, if you're not in that scenario, you don't see this as, you, you, you miss this. But we say, well, why don't you go, why don't you go buy the 48-pack of toilet paper and you'll save money per unit. Well, when you have just enough pennies to choose, I'm going to pay my electric bill or I'm going to get food, you don't have the extra money to buy the 48-pack. You go and buy the four-pack that's three times the cost per unit. You see what I'm saying? You're at a true disadvantage. There is such a thing as privilege in the world. I'm not making a political statement. It's just a reality. I was born in Malawi, Africa. I'm standing here today wearing the clothes that I'm wearing, driving the car that I drive, sleeping in the bed that I slept in, living in the house that I live in, because I had a level of privilege afforded to me that the average person in Malawi, still one of the poorest countries in the world, still to this day, had no access to. Do you understand that? So if you're in that scenario, you know that it could be everything you could do just to get to 5 p.m. to where you could say, oh man, maybe I'd be able to go work. And if that's the case, what Jesus is saying is that the, the, good news, the, the good news of God's grace overcomes disadvantage and it actually is good news to the poor. I, I think that's in part of what Jesus is trying to say. But I think what Jesus is really saying is he's saying this is the person that's lazy because he's trying to shock us with grace. So I, I want you for a second to think, in your categories, who are, who are the people that you would put in that 5 p.m. group that you say, those bums, they don't deserve God's grace. I, I was thinking about this, and I just have some pictures of some people that come to my mind that I think, man, I don't think it's fair that these people would get grace. Uh, maybe you think of a homeless person. I, I, some people are homeless not through choices of their own, but some people are. I've talked to some homeless people, and they want to be homeless. They don't want to be responsible. They don't want to have a job. Um, maybe, maybe that's it. What about this person right here? Is this a 5 p.m. person? What if God were graceful to that person? Or maybe you grew up laughing at the jokes of this person, and then you heard what this person was accused of, 
and you say, I don't think God should forgive someone like that. Or this person. Uh, this is uh, a, a man who lived in Wichita, Kansas, when my wife and I lived there. And for a number of years, uh, he was the president of his Lutheran church in a town not far from where we lived. And uh, he, would, he was like Ted Bundy, and he did what Ted Bundy did. And he had a routine, and he would send this letter into the police, and they couldn't found it, find him. And he showed himself again in the, in the 90s, and they found him, and they caught him. Uh, if God forgives him, is, is that okay? Um, or what about this person? If, you, if you're more, maybe a more conservative person, and you see people like this, you go, oh, those are the people that don't deserve grace. Or just lately in the news, this comedian for what she did with regard to the president. Maybe that's a person you say, what a worthless piece of. It matters who you think is in that category because if you say there are some people who can't have grace, I don't think grace is then true. There was a guy named Will Campbell. Will Campbell uh, in the 1950s was white and he moved from the north to the south to be a part of the civil rights movement. He thought it was unjust as a Christian, and so he went there. Uh, one of the things that was really unsettling to him is he would try and go and talk to people, who, Christians who read the same Bible he did, but they came to conclusions that they were superior to someone who had darker skin. And he couldn't understand it. And so he found affinity with people who were, uh, just wanted justice to be done, but may, maybe weren't people of faith. Uh, and the only other people who would help him, other than uh, black folk, were some, a few white folk who would come down from the north, and one of those was a, a student uh, in his 20s named Jonathan. Jonathan came down to help Will. And uh, around in Will's circle was uh, this journalist named P.D. East. And P.D. East wanted to understand why in the world Will would remain a person of faith when all these people who said they were followers of Jesus were doing something so unjust. He's like, how can you be a part of that? He said, so I, I want, in one of their conversations, he said, I want you to tell me, uh, tell me in 10 words of, or less, what's the definition of Christianity? And kind of off the cuff, um, Will said this definition. I'm going to use uh, nine words. He used eight. Uh, and I will, I'll be polite because it's a, we're maybe children in the room. It just kind of threw this out there. just kind of came to him. He said, we're all illegitimate children. He used a different word for those two words. But God loves us anyway. The more he stayed with that definition, the more he went, yeah, that's accurate. In God's sight, we're all illegitimate children. We've all strayed, and we all, if God doesn't love us, we're all in trouble. And it just kind of, he liked the definition more and more, and PD would remind him from time to time of that definition. He said, I want to know if that's really true. One day, uh, Jonathan uh, had been at a sit-in in, in a store in the south, in a town in the south, and got up and was walking down the street when a, a sheriff, a local sheriff by the name of Thomas Coleman, who was a member of a church and was mad about what was happening with people of a different color and was mad that anyone would come and help them, pulled out a shotgun and emptied it in to Jonathan, killing him. Uh, they went through the funeral and Will and PD were talking again and PD came at him and he said, I want to know about your definition. I want to know. And he kept pestering him, pestering him. In fact, the people around him said, you just leave him alone. He's grieving. He said, no, I want to know. He said, was, was Jonathan, was he an illegitimate child? Use the word that he used. 
And he said, you know, he had to pause. Will had to pause and say, yeah, I, I mean, technically, yes, yes, all of us are sinners. All of us are apart from God. All of us are illegitimate. But God accepts and loves us, and that's the gospel. I mean, that's the essence of Christianity. And he said, well, was Thomas Coleman, was he an illegitimate child? And he said, no problem. Absolutely he is. And then Petey leaned in close. He said he pulled his chair up, and he leaned in, and he put his hand on his knee, and he looked him in the eyes, and he said, so which one of those illegitimate children does God love more? Will said it was like a, something broke inside of him, and he got up, and he went to the window, and he looked out the window, and he said he couldn't tell. He was laughing and crying at the same time because it hit him. He said, if, if it's not true that God would give the same grace to Thomas Coleman as he would give to Jonathan, then we have no grace, we have no gospel, and all this is, this is a bunch of rules that we're trying to keep, and there is no good news for anyone. And he said it became inside of him like an earthquake of grace, and it changed how he saw everything, including himself, including his work, and including what he was doing, so much so that he decided, you know what, there's no one going and taking the gospel of grace to the Ku Klux Klan. And he said, so he appointed himself an apostle to the rednecks. <laughs> Love that. In an, in an attempt to say, the grace of God is for you too. If it's not for you, and all of your hate, and all of your racism, then it's for no one. And, and honestly, this is, this is what I'm hoping. I, I, this whole series is so you would have an earthquake of grace inside of your soul, and you would recognize that grace is absolute for everyone, and it is not fair, and you want it to be that way, because if it's not fair, then you and I are not in either. Because if I get what I deserve, if you get what you deserve, oh. Grace is the truth. That's the message of Jesus. I want to pray for you, and I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. And I'd like you to uh, hold your hands out like this as a way of receiving God's grace if you're ready to do that. Lord, I pray you'd shake us to the foundations with the earthquake of your grace that you'd shake us out of the story that we've lived in where we get what we earn and that's it. And we would begin to operate our life by the math of grace. That you're the landowner. This is yours. This is all yours. We just happen to be here and work on it. It's not ours. We don't own this. We're not entitled to anything. You're the one who made us. You know what to do with us. And it's your grace in the end that wins. And so, God, I pray you'd overturn the ways we've been thinking so that we can, we can truly and humbly repent of living in a different story, of not being people of grace. God, make us into gracious people who understand what we've received and pass it on to other people. So thank you that your grace is for Thomas, the Thomas Coleman's of the world and for us pray this in your name and all God's people said. Amen. We always leave you with a blessing so you'll see some people holding out their hands uh, as their way of saying I'd like to receive that if you're comfortable with that and you want to receive that blessing you can do the same if you're not that's okay please receive this blessing. May you know the grace of God that was for you when you were at your absolute darkest did not reject you but loved you and drew you to God's love. You're sent out to love God to love people to serve the world in his name. Hug somebody tell them you love them. See ya.